You're listening to the Empowering Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at Help University, the University of Achievers. We'll be bringing you conversations with renowned psychologists and other health professionals that discuss a wide range of topics on mental health, psychology, and well-being. The Empowering Lives Podcast comes to you from the biggest psychology department in the whole of Malaysia. As we talk about the issues that matter to you most, stay tuned to this global podcast as we empower you to take away valuable insights and lessons that can improve your emotional health and well-being today. Hello and welcome to the Empowering Lives podcast wherever you're listening from. My name is Sandy Clark and today I'm joined by Professor Stephen C. Hayes, a clinical psychologist from the University of Nevada who is perhaps best known as the creator of acceptance and commitment therapy which is a widely used approach in counseling and psychotherapy throughout the world. Professor Hayes is also the author of 640 journal articles and 46 books, including the highly acclaimed Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, and his latest book, which is called A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters. So thank you for taking the time to do the show, Professor. How are you doing? I'm doing great here in the coronavirus era, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for inviting me. So I was thinking that we could maybe have a chat about um, you know, what it means to find meaning and purpose in life, particularly within these kind of challenging times. But if we could start off with a point about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I think that a lot of people often misunderstand that word acceptance when it comes to dealing with difficult issues or challenging situations. Some people might think that it means to just resign yourself to a situation or to a feeling or a thought and just let it roll over you. But of course, that, that's not really what we mean by acceptance, I think. And can you share some of your thoughts on what it actually means to accept your situation or an event? Yeah, in culture, in our English usage of the term, there's things that are pulled up by acceptance. I mean, sometimes we tell people, well, you should just accept it. And really what we kind of mean is stop complaining or I don't like feeling what I feel and I hear what you're feeling. So why don't you stop telling me about what you're feeling? I mean, it really can be an unkind word, even though we mean it in a very kind way mm-hmm. in the act of acceptance and commitment therapy work. It is in inside English, though, the connotation that we mean. It comes from a Latin root that means to receive, is just to receive a gift, sapere, the Latin. Uh, and it's in English when we give a precious gift to someone, we say, here, will you accept this? Mm-hmm. And the more precious the gift, the more likely we are to say that. And what we mean by that is not, would you put up with it or tolerate yourself to receiving it or resign yourself? We mean, will you willingly receive this gift Uh, acknowledging the precious nature of the gift. Mm -hmm. And the thing that our history gives us is wisdom. So when we're open to what our thoughts, our feelings, our memories, our bodily sensations, our urges, our predispositions, so when we're open to our own experience, which is an echo of the past and the present, you come into a new social situation and you're feeling a little nervous, there's something in that situation that connects you to your history. A baby would not necessarily feel nervous. You feel nervous because you have a history. And is your own history your own enemy? Really? Because it's the source of your wisdom, is it not? And you actually know, we know in the research literature, that if people are unwilling to receive the wisdom, the gift of their history, they tend to replicate some of the worst parts of it. 
I'll give you an example. Uh, people who have been abused are the last people on the planet who should be abused again. But the data show that somebody who's been abused in the past is more likely to be abused in the future if they're not able to really access their own feelings, memories, and bodily sensations when they're in situations that remind themselves of the past abuse. In other mm -hmm. words, if you refuse the gift, you mentally kind of say, no, I will not remember, I will not feel, I will not sense, I will not notice. You know, if you've been sexually abused, you may form a relationship with somebody who's not safe. You may go home with somebody who's not safe. You may not be able to read this third sense, the intuitive sense that something's off, something's wrong. And so, uh, you know, in the same way that if you're reaching out to your desk right now and feeling the surface and there was sand on it, you'd want to be able to have your feelers be able to sense it so that you could do something about it, maybe clean mm -hmm. your desk. It doesn't do any good to attack the feelers in your fingers and say, what's the matter with you fingers? Your fingers are doing what they're supposed to do. And your emotions are valid. What if your emotions are valid? What if your thoughts, even when they're scary, when they reflect the kind of shadow part of us, the part of us that's not fully into our conscious awareness, what if that's actually our friend? What if that's actually helping us in some way? Mm -hmm. So that's what we mean by acceptance. It's, it's being open to receive the gift. It doesn't mean wallowing. It doesn't mean entanglement. It doesn't mean putting up, resigning, giving up. It doesn't mean any of those things. And mm -hmm. so I wish there was another word in English that would really dial into what we mean. Self-kindness is pretty good. Self-compassion is pretty good. Um, maybe I just didn't think of it, but the we're stuck with it now, so it's uh, act, and acceptance is the first word, but it's uh, one that I think everybody listening knows. There are times when you would use that word to mean a choice of openness that's in the service of fostering your life in a positive way, and that's mm. the sense which we mean it. And I think in, in acceptance and commitment therapy, the, the opposite to acceptance is avoidance. And you mentioned that, um, you know, we're in the, at the time that we are speaking, uh, we're in the midst of a health crisis where lives have been turned around in so many different ways. And um, when we are in the midst of uncertainty, uh, such as a pandemic or a sudden loss or change in our lives, we often react in that sort of fear-based uh, driven way that, that really are unhelpful and can undermine our individual as well as collective interests in a, in a sense. So we see, for example, um, panic buying at the supermarket initially or hoarding behaviors. Um, people who are trying to almost react in an animalistic, instinctive way that they feel might protect their safety and health and that of their loved ones. But a lot of the time, it doesn't really serve our best interests. So why does this happen? And, and, and what does it tell us about how the mind reacts to unfamiliar or unpleasant experiences? Well, you know, the social extension of consciousness is to be conscious of the consciousness of others. The social extension of acceptance and emotional openness is to feel what it feels like to be another person. Mm. And those two features of perspective taking, be able to go behind the eyes of others and empathy, being able to feel what it's like to be behind that. Predict pro-social action only if you have a third thing, which is that you don't run away when it's hard. Because sometimes what you'll find when you go behind the eyes of others is you're going to find pain. And that's part of what connects you to others. That's part of what intimacy means, what belonging, what community means. And here we are in a situation where you can turn on the screens and you can have a look at people who are standing in bread lines or weeping over the death of a loved one who maybe died alone because they weren't allowed in the room. You know, really difficult things. 
And if you take the time to go behind the eyes of, the, of others and feel what it feels like and then open up to the part of that that's hard, not in the service of some kind of masochistic, let's just feel bad, but in the service of connecting you in consciousness to the human community that's walking through this challenge. When you grab the fourth you know, bundle of toilet paper, it might occur to you that you're asking somebody else to not have any. And that requires that flexible perspective taking. It requires, if you're going to use the word for it, not being so selfish. So what we know is that if you become cognitively entangled, emotionally avoidant, and fail to take the perspective of others, you tend to be more selfish. You tend to objectify, dehumanize, you easily engage in behaviors that are not pro-social. It's not what we evolved to do. We're the social primates. I mean, we evolved in small bands and groups. Cooperation is part of our nature. Being able to understand the intentions and needs of others. I mean, our mirror neurons are lighting up when somebody's in pain around us. If you look at the eyes of a baby, the baby starts dumping national opiates in its brain just at the presence of kind eyes contacting theirs. And when we come into the world ready to connect, to cooperate, to support, be part of a community, and yet the judgmental problem-solving part of us that emerges as human language emerges can easily turn from a we to a me. And next thing you know, it will be feeding you lots of evaluations and judgments about how awful it would be if you didn't have this, that, or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you think of some of these, take, take the toilet paper example. I mean, do you really mean that you couldn't wash yourself with water or something? It, would it be so awful? You're gonna hoard toilet paper? Really? Why? I mean, it's different even if you said, oh, I need enough food. Okay, you need enough toilet paper? I mean, how selfish can you get? What a crazy thing. It doesn't even make, it doesn't withstand rational thought. But there we are, you know, in the early days, people going out with shopping carts full of water and toilet paper. Mm -hmm. What, the water system is going to shut down? Really? It's very primitive and it's driven, we know, by emotional avoidance, cognitive entanglement, failure to take the perspective of others. And it's not by accident that all of these are inside act. And the thing that really, really lands the plane where you say, maybe I shouldn't do this is it violates our own values. It's really not how we want to be. Mm -hmm. If you were to pick somebody who would get through this Corona challenge, who would be a hero of yours, just pick somebody who you know would really step up and really be kind of how you would want to be in this. I bet you it doesn't include hoarding. You know full well that you don't want to be about that. So could we calm the mind enough to live our values, to show up to the kind of human beings we want to be and uh, pray that there's enough values-based action in the world to step up to this challenge and the other ones that are coming, whether it's climate change or immigration or, or you pick it. We've got some big challenges here. We better learn how to take perspective of other people and to show up even when it's hard. When you mentioned that idea of values-based living, much of your work focuses on turning from what you call pain and suffering toward meaning and purpose. And in your latest book, A Liberated Mind, you write that through the cultivation of flexibility pivots, the body starts turning off those reaction systems that make us sensitive to stress. Can you yeah. share some of your thoughts on what's meant by flexibility pivots? You'd have to read A Liberated Mind to really know what it means. It's in the title, the subtitle of how to pivot towards what matters. What I mean by that is this, is that if you look inside the processes that are pathological, 
And in the model that's underneath ACT, we have a name for that whole set. We call it psychological inflexibility. And we have a, a name for the set of what promotes prosperity, human growth, connection, et cetera, we call psychological flexibility. So flexibility and flexibility are the two sides. It's like a box. There's six sides to a box. There's six sides to psychological flexibility or inflexibility. And each relates to the other. What the pivot concept has is to note that the things that we do that most harm us is that there's a common human yearning inside the inflexibility side and the flexibility side, and they're kind of glued together. Let me give you an example. We yearn to feel. Babies come out of the womb, practically. I mean, you've, if you've ever had a baby, you know that they're reaching for things. They want to lick it, taste it, smell it, sniff it, rub it. They want to explore, feel, sense what's there in their environment. And yet, by the time languages start to show up, kind of evaluate things in the good and bad, we take that basic yearning, the yearning to feel, and we start turning it into, I really only want to feel good. Yeah, but the problem is all emotions have a role. And we pay good money for all of the emotions, all of them. We read sad novels. We, we go for rides on roller coasters. We watch horror movies. You know, we pay good money for every single emotion you can name to produce it in ourselves. Yeah? And yet the mind says, oh, I only want the, the good ones. So I've got an idea. I want to feel, but I only want to feel good. Yeah, but if I said you could only say good, bad, and I said happy, you say good. If I said sad, you'd say bad, wouldn't you? Of course you would. Well, I got a call that my 93-year-old mother was in the third day of pneumonia, and she was a short airplane hop away from me down in Arizona from Reno, Nevada. Mm -hmm. And I ran to the airline and got there in a matter of hours just in time to watch her go through a five-hour process of dying of having her feet turn black and her, her breast space, and eventually the last breath came. Was it sad? It was intensely sad. Was it precious? It was spectacularly precious. I would have paid $100,000 to be there. I mean, I, I would pay almost anything to have been there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when I said, if I said happy, you'd say good. And if I said sad, you'd say bad, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody listening would say that. But sad, bad, when you're talking about your mother dying, is insanity. It's human insanity. That's sad, good. The mind doesn't get that. It doesn't understand it because it's a problem-solving engine. It's about evaluating things. And it's great when you're doing your car, you know, this part would be better than that part. It's horrible when you're trying to find meaning and purpose or come to terms with the human life. So by letting judgment get in there, this yearning for feeling has turned into feeling good. So what I do is I take the feel-good agenda that's inside avoidance. I won't be afraid. I won't be sad. I won't be mad. I won't be, which eventually spreads to, by the way, this is how pathetic it is. It spreads to, I won't be happy. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when you're happy, you know it's going to go away and that would be bad. That's an empirical fact. So you may think you can get away with, oh, I just want to feel good. No, you can't. Even that. You know, drug addicts just want to feel good. People running away from anxiety just want to feel good. But the effect of it long run is, is that you can't be whole and free. You cannot even experience joy without restraint. You can't experience love without restraint because you know that love and loss comes together. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm sad at my mother dying is because I love my mother. Mm -hmm. That's why. In a point-to-point -point correspondence with that. So 
The pivot idea is to take that energy that's inside, for example, the single worst psychological process known in all of psychology was experiential avoidance. It's one of six inflexibility processes. It's this idea that you're going to run away from your experience, and when you do that enough, life will be better. The feel-good agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Don't feel bad, feel good. Single worst thing human beings can do predicts more outcomes in more areas to, to a greater degree than any other single thing you can name, in my opinion. I think that's a science-based fact. We'll take that yearning that's inside the feel-goodism and we'll pivot it in the sense that we'll t- put it in a new direction to what would it be like if we went back a little bit more like what it was before we had all these cognitive problem-solving filters and we open up to feeling per se. In its place, not wallowing, not being overwhelmed, but all feelings have a place. Your feelings are valid. Could we create a place in which it's okay to be you with feelings? And that sadness has a place. Anger has a place. Disappointment has a place. You know, the pain of betrayal has a pace and on and on it goes. And out of that, a place is scooped out into which you can pour love, connection, joy. So the metaphor that I'm using there is the metaphor of taking the energy inside us at our worst pulling out the parts of it that are not life enhancing and channeling that energy in an entirely new direction. And the metaphor of a pivot, you know, it's like a hinge in a door is that you take the energy when you push a door open, you push one way, it goes the other way. And anybody listening to me knows how to dance. You want to have energy moving. You, know, you, you don't want to dance with somebody who's, you know, standing there like a stump, you know, move any direction will work. We can, we can, we can deal with that. And I would rather have somebody moving in a pathological direction, take the energy inside that and whip it in a new direction. We're going to go faster, farther that way than just sort of standing there like a stump. So the book, A Liberated Mind, walks through how we can take the processes that create living at its worst and swing it around in a new direction that'll help us move towards living at its best. And, uh, you know, the about three, 4,000 studies that that's sitting on over the last 40 years that shows that that's actually the way it works, that that's actually possible, and how you can do it, giving people the skills mm. to actually do it. That point that you mentioned about emotions playing a role, that they serve a, a functional purpose, I think is one that many people uh, misunderstand. And, and I've seen, for example, on the internet from centers of therapy, uh, sharing ideas that there's unhealthy emotions and, and healthy emotions and how to switch between the two. But as you say, that's a kind of misguided perception because it all feeds into Um, helping us understand ourselves and therefore to find meaning. And when we have that closed off uh, mindset from particular emotions, it can sometimes sort of restrict that pursuit to find what's really important to us and to find meaning. In one of your other books that I mentioned earlier, uh, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, you write that what we need to learn to do is to look at thought rather than from thought. And it reminded me of a line that I read by a Franciscan priest, and he said, we can't think ourselves into new ways of living. We have to live ourselves into new ways of thinking. So why is our tendency to think ourselves out of or into situations often unhelpful? And what is the alternative to that that can bring us into that um, range where we can start to find meaning and purpose? Well, what drives human thought often tends to be being right. It's a form of coherence. It's sort of this defensive thing of I have the one right answer. And, uh, you know, you have to worry about the fact that sometimes thought 
will give you an answer that's good in the short term and bad in the long term. You know, I'll give an example. You know, we were talking to a person who struggled with anxiety disorder. It's part of what act work comes from. And in the days when I was rocking and rolling as a person with panic, you know, if I said no to an invitation to come give a talk, I felt a lot better, you know. But then it was kind of like feeding a, a tiger in the corner of the room by throwing him some meat. You know, the tiger gets bigger and then it's even more threatening. And so the thought tends to draw us into short-term solutions, short-term gains at the cost of long-term pains uh, very easily because we don't come with a rule book. We don't come with an owner's manual and you've got to live enough life to see how things work over an arc of, of time. So just being right and figuring it out and have it all fit together. Part of what that doesn't deal with is the short-term, long-term. The other part is that lots of situations in life are best not solved as a problem-solving way. Sometimes we need to access things that are more intuitive, contextual, felt sense, and so forth, and thinking about it too much actually interferes. Uh, if you ever have played a piano really well or played sports or been on stage or you know, there's lots of things that are done more intuitively. And if you overthink it, you do poorly. Mm -hmm. We know that. We've all experienced it. But the mind still says, I can do it for you. I can do it. You know, listen to me. Then next thing you know, you know, you're uh, fumbling and stumbling. And, uh, you know, it's hard for us, even very, very simple things. I sometimes show this in workshops by uh, getting people to walk on a line that's only four inches long without any imbalance. Mm -hmm. which you easily would do just naturally by walking. But once you focus on it and try to think of how to place one foot in front of the other, if you've ever been up on a tall fence or something, you know that you almost forget what the order is and how to do it. Everything becomes unnatural because it wasn't learned as a rule. But there are lots of situations where the mind is just falling along behind, making claims. I know who you are. I know how to do it. Listen to me. No, I need to open up to the whole of my history, some of which is just a felt sense, some of which is intuitive, some of which is unconscious, some of which is built into my basic underlying biology, some of it is being part of a culture or group and so on. So when you rein in the mind and you learn to look at it, not from it, you have a little bit of a chance to take what's useful and to leave the rest. You can respectfully decline the invitation of the mind to always follow its dictates. Mm -hmm without having to argue it and make it shut up because it won't shut up. That voice within is going to go with you to the grave. I mean, you can quiet it maybe with enough meditation, contemplation, things like that. But even then, monks who've meditated for decades on end, you know, say that they can catch the voice, categorizing, judging, predicting, mm -hmm. evaluating, ruminating, worrying, uh, drawing them into delusion, self-aggrandizement, into self-pity, self-criticism. And it's just built into the human cognitive capacity. A final thing that I sometimes point out in workshops is that this wild horse called our mind has the ability, it's wonderful, to relate to anything to anything else in any possible way and to have the answer seem to make sense. When I'm doing in workshops, I demand to nouns it's just usually easier to do it that way and then i will make up a relationship that you don't usually hear anyone will work is better than is the opposite too but i'll do something like his father of just because it's so we don't hear that a lot and we end up with questions to the whole 
group of folks learning, you know, something like, I'm just looking at my desk here, and I could say, you know, how is a, uh, a highlight marker the father of a, a computer cord attachment? You'll come up with an answer and it'll seem to be apt. Maybe the highlight marker highlighted the part of the theory or the design that would allow you to create a lightning connector for your Mac. So therefore the highlight marker showing the important features of the product design is the father of this. I could do it the other way, you know, how is a cord connector the father of the highlight? Yeah, maybe somebody designed the highlight on a computer and they hook the cord connector to their screen so that they could see their laptop on their big screen on there. And therefore, when they were doing the product design for the highlighter, that that was the father of the. Well, when we finish, that seems apt, right? It seems true. It seems true, not even beyond language. It's actually so in some way. It's like, you know, Mount Everest is bigger than a P. That's so. Yeah, but if you can do any relationship and any two things, I, I said nouns, but you can do verbs, and always have an answer that's apt. And by the way, you can. Mm-hmm. I've done it. I've done hundreds of them. Here, we're going to try to rein in a capacity, a skill that will connect everything to everything else in all possible ways if you allow it to do it. And it's happening even in your dreams. It's happening when you don't control it. It's happening all the time. Rumbling around in the basement. It's like a spider you know, weaving webs in, in your basement. You're going to you know, get it right in the face when you walk down the stairs. And we're going to rein that in? We're going to like make that all neat and tidy? No, you're not. Your head is full of things that are contradictory, prejudiced, stigmatizing, fearful, useless, mm-hmm. ridiculous, insane. So what? What are you going to do? There's no eraser. You're not going to, there's no delete button in the nervous system, short of brain injury. So what you need to learn is how to look at the process of thinking with a sense of equanimity. There you go again. Thank you, mind, for trying to help me. I really appreciate you reminding me of that. Uh, but I've got this covered. And, and sometimes what shows up in the mind is very useful. You know, your taxes have to be filed a week from now. Thank you. That's good. I better organize my week so that I can do that. But sometimes not so much. You know, deep down, you're unlovable. Okay, mm-hmm. thanks. Thanks. That's an echo of a bit of history. So we have methods in our spiritual and wisdom traditions, increasingly in our psychotherapy traditions, but all of us know it. We've all learned it. We all know that the voice within is not a reliable voice and it's that wild horse needs to be put on a leash so that we can have it without having it run us off the side of a cliff without having it be the boss without turning our lives over to it it's just one feature of us after all and when you gave that example about the highlighter and the computer cord i noticed my own mind it couldn't initially make any kind of connection but i could see that it was trying so hard to do so um so i think in any other kind of situation that we find ourselves in where we can't find an explanation initially the mind kind of ticks along until it finds something absolutely and, you know it's, it's, it's like you know why did i lose the job well it could have been because the, the the business um just wasn't performing it's nothing to do with you personally or why did the relationship not work out or why did this thing happen yeah and you can somehow even if the 
if the explanation isn't obvious that it comes back to you, your mind is fantastic at making it about you and making it your fault and, and making you feel smaller as well. Um, and it's quite, uh, when you learn to observe that, I, I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating when you can sort of watch the mind really search for that explanation that not only you know is not going to um, make sense immediately, but it will make sense because it makes it make sense. Um, yeah. And it sort of deepens that, that, that sort of um, that issue that you're going to have because yeah, of that. And, and, and you've mentioned, you mentioned, uh, you know, that it might uh, criticize you and maybe be at the short end of the stick, but you could also say, you're right. And the others were wrong. You're great. You're grand. Mm. You're the most wonderful. I'm the most special, you know, I'll make uh, the universe great again. I mean, whatever it is, we'll, maybe we'll have print baseball caps. Uh, but no, whether it goes so-called positive or so-called negative, and in both cases, it's just the mind doing its thing. It could be useful. It could be helpful. Let's see. And most people actually get a sixth sense as to when the mind is helpful and when it isn't. But the mind is very, very tricky at being able to draw you into trying to play life on its own terms. And when you really fully do that, you're cutting yourself off from sources of wisdom and guidance that are not just analytic judgmental problem solving mm -hmm. and, you know, felt sense. For example, some things are experiential. Some things you learn through ways that you don't even, there's good data on this, you know, that you can arrange conditions in which people can learn by processes that are based on experience that if you demand that people figure it out, they no, can no longer learn it. A study from long, long ago is in the 50s by one of my science uh, heroes was a study that showed that if you had people uh, move their body in a very, very subtle way, they had wires all over the bodies and most of them were sham wires. And they were there just so that nobody knew what was really being measured. Uh, and in this case, it was a thumb twitch of the uh, smallest sort uh, that uh, you could turn off an aversive noise and everybody learned how to do it. And then the scientist said to another group of people, here's the deal. If you can move your thumb so small that you can't even see it, it'll turn off the noise, which is literally true. That's exactly what was going on. It was measuring an EMG response that was above a threshold, but below another threshold. Nobody learned it. Nobody learned it. As soon as you know that's what you're trying to do, you couldn't learn it. So, you know, don't be so sure that everything will respond to a verbal rule. You're not gonna be compassionate, creative, loving, spontaneous. Uh, you're not gonna be able to hit a tennis ball or play Flight of the Bumblebee or dance well or, or love well. Or if you only rely on the paint by numbers, judgmental verbal answers that your mind's gonna give you to how to do anything. I mean, we never would have learned how to walk. Look at a baby walking. They, by trial and error, sometimes their foot gets in front of them. They fall on average 110 times a day when they're learning to walk. And they, and they will toddle about the length of 10 football fields, you know, which just exhausts the parents. But they are willing to just get up and do it, 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 get up and do it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times falling on their diaper rear ends. And eventually they're able to walk. Well, if you have a rehab a clinic, and I've worked in them, people have a brain injury, let's say, and have to relearn how to walk. They start shouting at their legs. They, they need bars. They want reassurance. You know, in some of it, you're bigger and you, do want, you don't want to fall. You're not going to fall on a diapered butt if you're 
200 pounds, six foot tall person. But mm -hmm. so some of it makes sense, but some of it doesn't. Some of it's just the arrogance of the mind that we should be able to learn how to walk because we know how to walk and we'll just tell our, our legs to do it. That's not how you learned it originally. You didn't learn swimming out of a book. You didn't learn how to be a good person out of a, a book that's as thick as a, a novel or something. You learned it by trial and error learning. And so don't be so arrogant. I'm glad I got a mind. I'm glad it can tell me what to do. But a whole lot of things it tells me to do isn't wise. And a whole lot of things I know better as a whole person than just that part of me that is able to say that a, a marker is the father of a, a chord. And when you mentioned the earlier about playing piano or trying to learn your experience through focusing rather than intuition, it, it kind of drew my mind back to when I was learning to play guitar. And, you know, you spend half an hour trying to learn to go from one chord to the other. And it's so frustrating. And the more you focus, the harder it becomes. And you finally find yourself um, at some point, it just becomes second nature. You're not even thinking sure. about it. Because when you start to, when I think back, I got so frustrated learning this thing. And um, I think at one point I said to myself, do you know what? I'm just trying to enjoy this thing. So I'm just going to do it out of just having fun. I'm not going to bother trying to get to a certain stage. Yeah. And when I, when I let go of that need to be perfect, that need to get the chord spot on or the hand the right way and all that kind of stuff, I found I was able to actually play much better because it was oh, just yeah. that kind of more mindful, present experience rather than, as you say, this kind of evaluative, uh, measuring, judging mindset that says, no, you have to get it right because if you don't, then somehow you're useless or you're incompetent well, or inadequate. Uh, you know, I use that exact example of learning how to play guitar in a liberated mind because I've taught quite a number of people to play guitar and I kind mm -hmm. of know what predicts people actually successfully being able to learning. And it's that exact moment of letting go of perfection and enjoying where you are in the arc of competence as a music player with the intention of getting better, yes, but with that immediate kind of enjoyment and going with the flow, allowing your fingers to learn, allowing your whole self to be brought into it and not getting too judgmental, too mindy, too much focused on the end. I tell the story when I was teaching guitar, which I haven't done, to be honest, recently, but uh, in, in college and in graduate school and so forth, I was a, a good enough player that people would want to learn. And I would always uh, try to be of help and teach them. But it, if somebody would come and immediately be talking about how they really wanted to play in front of a large crowd and be so, so great that everybody would applaud and stuff, part of me is saying, you're never going to learn it. You're never going to learn it. Those are not the consequences that produce competent guitar playing. The, the consequences are getting out of the way enough for you to enjoy the music you're producing at the level of competence that you're in right now. Mm -hmm. well, what would it be? And then you get better. So what would it be like if our own relationships or compassion for others or sense of mutual understanding or, you know, what, if, what would it be like if we treated the process of learning how to be a whole, connected, open, engaged human being, to be a good human being, if it was viewed the same way, and, and where you could be a little more forgiving, that, oh, you got hooked, you know, dang it, you know, why did you say that arrogant thing? Why did you criticize when you really meant to compliment? Why did you, you know, create a fight when you really meant to create connection? 
and just a, allow this process to occur where you get to be more and more creating uh, habits of values-based action mm-hmm. so that even when you're not watching, you're not quite so full of ego. You're not quite so full of fear. You're not quite so full of pretense. You know that if you pick any really deep human learning, it will respond to the wisdom of what you just said in your story. But not if you just turn over everything to the mind, because it's going to tell you that you need to somehow spring forth from the head of Zeus and be perfect at the first instance. Mm-hmm. And if you are, that proves how great and grand you are. And so what you need to do is hide your errors. Don't let people see your vulnerabilities. You know, on and on it goes. And what it ends up with is not only incompetence, but aloneness, alienation, disconnection, a lack of vitality. It's a really inhuman and unliving, unloving way to treat yourself. It's so mindy and judgmental. None of us like to be constantly judged and but we do it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you do stuff to the person in the mirror when you're brushing your teeth that you would never do to a child. You would never do to somebody that you love. What are you doing that for? Why? Well, I think you're letting your mind do more than it knows how to do. And find this more spiritual, wiser place within where you can get better and you can learn, you can improve, but in a way that's that's kinder. One of the the things that I tried to do when I was initially learning to play guitar was of course to head straight for uh, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, which uh, non-guitar players, um, you know, it's it's a very complex piece if you've never really picked up a guitar before, even if you have picked up a guitar before, it's it's very difficult. And I remember the the sort of pivot point for me in that sense was it was a kind of a, a joking voice that came into my head and it said, you know, someone like Buddy Holly made fame and fortune out of three chords, three simple chords. And here you are trying to learn uh, this complex piece of music. Uh, maybe you could start at that level first. <laughs> Just pick up the three chords and then see where yeah. you go from there. Um, it was more of a kind of a kind judgment trying to nudge me in a more realistic direction. Um, but just to wrap up the, the episode of Professor um, we spoke a lot about you know those pivot points and and looking from mm-hmm. our thoughts and and trying to unhook from those experiences that take us deeper into those unhelpful uh, patterns. Can you just give some advice or practical guidance uh, on how people you know how would they start to even develop to to unhook themselves to move towards a more helpful pivotal direction and um, especially in times when they might feel like it's a bit of a challenge such as during this kind of crisis that we're in well you might start with values start with meaning start with purpose because it's the context in which all these other skills that you can work on and they're, they're out there they're for free i'm not trying to sell books a liberated mind walks through it but you know you literally can google my name you'll see some uh, tedx talks and things and then Act, psychological flexibility, some of the terms we've talked about. There's so many free resources. But all of those skills, those mindfulness, those openness, those cognitive flexibilities, perspective taking skills, really where the rubber meets the road is that you create a life worth living, that you get habits of uh, larger and larger patterns of values based action. So, what did you come to do in the time that you have on this planet? What are the qualities of being and doing that you want to manifest in your life? And if you don't get too mindy about that either, don't just figure that out, but you open up your heart to the question, 
there are four ways in that I know they're covered in uh, these books, but one is to take the things you struggle with the most and flip them over and, and look at what does that suggest you care about? You know, if people are really frightening to you and you tend to avoid, flip it over. And I bet you, you know, being able to be connected with people is really important to you. Well, be guided by that and allow yourself to learn how. Another one is these sweet spots. What are the times where you felt especially engaged, up, uplifted, empowered, connected? Just allow your mind to go to the sweetest moments of life in any domain that you hold dear. And when you get a memory like that, when one shows up, if you unpack it, I bet you there's something in there that suggests the qualities of being and doing that you want to put into your behavior. I, I bet you inside that sweet moment, there was some values-based action by yourself or by another in that same experience. Mm -hmm. A third one is, who are your heroes? Who are your guides? Who are the ones people that you look up to? And in a particular domain where you may be having some struggles, whether it's work, relationships, creativity, you name it, think about somebody who was kind of your guide or hero in that area, somebody you actually knew, and then think about what their life stood for. And I bet you, you saw in them the reason they're a hero, the reason that you picked them as a guide is that they somehow in their way of being and doing reflected qualities that you'd like to put into your life. And I suggest to people, I actually wrote a column in psychology today called be your coronavirus hero, something like that. I go through that exercise and I say, okay, we're stuck at home. We have these challenges, etc. What if we would, like imagine that you're being filmed all day long, 24 seven, and it's gonna be shown later on, maybe even decades from now. And the film will be about how you handled the coronavirus. And would it be okay if you, as a kind of commitment to yourself, put into those film the qualities that you would pick of somebody who you think would handle the situation in a heroic values-based way? Be that person. Reflect that to your family, to yourself. The final one is uh, stories. And I usually say it this way. If you were going to write a story and it's the story of your life. And right now, this moment is where the next sentence get, gets written in the chapter. And you don't get to pick what the characters are in the story. You don't get to pick what the challenges are in the story. Those Life may pick that for you. Just minutes from now, you may feel a twinge that turns out to be a serious disease. Just minutes from now, you may get the email that somebody very close to you has had a, something horrible happen to them. You don't get to pick that, but you do get to pick something, which is, what is the story about? Is it a tragedy or is it a hero's journey? And if it's up to you, what's the next chapter of your life about? And so those are the four that I know, difficult, sweet, heroes, and stories. But take the time to dig in and really kind of ask yourself the question of what kind of person do I want to be? Who's my best self? Not as pretense, not as a clown suit, not a mask. What I mean is me as a whole person, what do I want to reflect in my life's journey? And uh, if you get that a little clearer, uh, don't go quickly to the words. Go to the experience and then allow the words to come. If you get that clear, well, then all these other skills, these skills of openness and of non-judgment and of 
perspective taking and connection and self-kindness and compassion for others, all those other ones will fit inside a journey that's about something, which is uh, you living a whole free life. Uh, and if there's not enough uh, values and love in the world that if we all did that, that the world wouldn't have what it's in need, then I guess it doesn't have what it needs. But let's find out. Is there enough values in the world that we can actually handle this virus, handle the climate change, handle poverty, handle the challenges of the human condition with raising our children and being kind to each other? I don't know. Let's find out. But I know right now, so many of us are not even close to living a life that we would say is a values-based life. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a tragedy that's unnecessary. And I think that, that uh, your point about trying to uh, see for yourself uh, what your journey might become, uh, what kind of things are going to be important to you, what kind of values do you want to be driven by, I think just from personal experience, that really helps to open up the, the road ahead, if you like, because when you're, again, for just from my experience, when you're focused on particular outcome-based goals, you can quickly lose motivation and you can quickly make a mistake and then give up. But if you have an idea of where you want to go and why that's so important to you and the people around you and the events around you that you want to um, you know, be a part of and, and to connect with, I think that really uh, helps to keep you on track and, and moving forward no matter how slowly. And I think that's an important point as well, that it's not about getting from A to B uh, as quickly as you can. Sometimes it, you, know, you can go at a steady pace, but the, the, the thing is that you keep on going. So thanks a lot for your, your time, Professor, and for all your valuable insights. I'm sure that our listeners will be um, taking a few of those away and able to apply those to their lives. So thanks for coming on the show. It was a privilege. Thank you for the opportunity to share some of this with uh, your listeners, and I hope I've been of use. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this week's episode of Empowering Lives. Be sure to check out our previous episodes from this series and Series 1, which are all available on Spotify and anchor.fm. Till next time, be well, take care, and stay safe. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Empowering Lives podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at HELP University, Malaysia, the University of Achievers. For more information about HELP University, visit www.help.edu.my and learn about our world-class programs and mental health services. Thank you for listening. And remember, together we can empower each other to build rich and meaningful lives driven by purpose, vision, and values.